Ladies and gentlemen, we want to say uh, again, thank you so much, Nick Stone Street, for all your support. Um, you know, we started on this journey a year ago as we talked about the importance of Juneteenth and throughout 2020, although it was a crazy year, you led the way in trying to help the company understand the importance of social justice mm -hmm. and and just humanity. And what inspired you to, to lead Ronald Blue Trust that way? I wanted to hear from Sabrina. I didn't know you were gonna ask me these questions. <laughs> now, um, it, look, Mike, we've been friends a long time. And so thinking about just, you know, how people are supposed to treat each other, how people are supposed to listen to each other, um, how we're supposed to care for each other, it's just fundamental. You know, it's fundamental to our faith. It's fundamental to being a human being. And um, when you see people that are so caught up in um, which, whichever news network they watch, uh, how divided they are and how much infighting there is, I mean, it's just sad. And so this was just a way, you know, you and I kind of putting our heads together to go, you know, what we need is to be peacemakers. We don't need to be embroiled in controversy, but learning how we can love each other. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. And ladies and gentlemen, we have this series entitled The Way Forward. We strive to be peacemakers in our daily lives. And uh, we want to encourage you to join this movement, to join this quest. We believe that believers are best suited to help in this crazy society that we're living in. You know, the topic of race and law enforcement has polarized our nation. However, there are peacemakers who bridge the divide by striving to live out their faith while performing their civic duties. And today, our guest is Sabrina Maxwell-Patterson. And uh, Sabrina, thank you for being a part of today. Can you share with us what you're, how are you involved in law enforcement? Thank you so very much. I, I first would like to say I am excited to see a company such as Ronald Blue and Trust engaging in uh, this platform. It is necessary. So I'm honored to be here. Thanks, Sabrina. Um, a little about me. Uh, I've been in law enforcement 23 and a half years, and I serve as assistant chief in the state of Florida um, in the Division of Alcoholic Beverages and Tobacco. And so this profession has allowed me to see a lot of um, issues between the races, if you will. And it has also given me a platform to try to make a difference. Mm -hmm. And I have used this platform to um, try to talk with my subordinates, with my leaders, with my colleagues, to engage them in this need. So it's very important. All righty. Well, how in the world did you get into law enforcement? By default. <laughs> okay. By default. While completing my master's degree, I was working at, um, um, I would say, as a department uh, legal aid, if you will. And I had a gentleman speak to me about being a special agent. I had no idea what that meant, but it sounded exciting. And so my goal was to be an attorney. He explained to me about going to the police academy. I never desired to be a police officer, never really understood what police officers did, but I did. And um, I became a special agent and moved to Jacksonville and uh, worked my way up the chain doing different types of investigations, if you will. And so I tell people I'm here by default. It was just the title of special agent is the reason why I'm a law enforcement officer today. 
Yeah, that sounds exciting, right? To be yeah, a the title. Agent. Yeah, a great <laughs> I had title. no idea what that meant. <laughs> and then the reality of going through uh, the yeah. training and the academy, what yes. was that like for you? It was six months of uh, grueling pain, mm. and uh, it was mental um, abuse, to be honest with you, because it was trainers who were male, white male, and I was uh, one of two uh, black females in that class, and... Um, I was the last one to complete that training. Mm -hmm. So it was very tough because it was their goal to eliminate the women from the class. Huh. More, more bias towards women or more bias towards a woman of color? I have to say towards women. Interesting. Okay. Because they would share with us that this is a profession that is carved out, I would call it like yesterday, for men only. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we have a, a good friend, Daryl Owens, who's a trainer in the Boston Police yes. Department. And when he was here uh, a couple of years ago, he spoke with us and he talked about how it was so important for, uh, he's responsible in Boston. He said, you know, I wanted to get the uh, Irish cops that were angry at people off the streets yes. and get, he said, we wanted to hire black nerds. I'm just quoting what Daryl <laughs> no, said. No, I understand. And he said, and we wanted black nerds to work in the community with black people yes. and, and have more community engagement. What's your thought about that as far as law enforcement tactics? Because we haven't heard a lot of bad stuff coming out of Boston. No, we haven't. Daryl's no. 30 years there may have had an impact. I wish that every state would look at a strategic plan on uh, recruiting blacks into law enforcement. Um, that's very far and few between, to be honest with you. And uh, in Florida, we definitely do not have a plan of action such as that. And it definitely does not include women. Um, so I believe every agency should tap into that to see if there is a need in sponsoring women or blacks into the academy so that we have more um, blacks that are engaged in the community and understand um, what's happening. And then also then that affects their colleagues because they can engage right. them in the things they don't understand. So if there's a white colleague that doesn't understand the black community, then that black officer can help them with that. That's great. It's conversation. Well, it's got to, you know, it should reflect, I guess uh, you'd think that the policing should re reflect the community, right? Yeah. If if the community is primarily Hispanic, we need some Hispanic police. Absolutely. Officers. Growing up in Miami, Florida, you'd see a lot of, you know, different flavors yes. of police officers. So I think Miami probably was forced to understand that, you know, differences in community, differences in language yes. and everything. That but is correct. As you've gone through, you know, special agent, I mean, I'm now it's assistant chief. Assistant chief, Amazing. Yes. So what are some things that you've, you know, seen? I mean, I'm from Miami. You got any good Miami stories for me, you know? Or Oh, wow. I just left Miami uh, two weeks ago. Um, I actually worked an undercover investigation in Miami. Hialeah. Oh, okay. Great. I was purchasing narcotics. Okay. Um, and it, that was I won't a, say whether or not I've ever done that. And I won't say if I saw you or not. <laughs> if I did it one as a special. I never saw you. <laughs> but I did. I worked closely with um, two um, Cuban officers, mm -hmm. and we worked an investigation there. 
Um, of course, it was a black club, but they were assigned that investigation. So, um, you know, as special agent, I was advised that I would be working a lot of narcotics. So that was primarily my job, and I would travel the state and do so. So um, I did bring that investigation to a close. It was successful. The, the, the subject did go to jail, but um, it was very different working um, in that culture. They didn't understand me, and I was still trying to learn and understand them. That's so. great. So you were undercover. I was undercover. Did you have an undercover name? <laughs> Mary. That was always Come my on. favorite. Oh, Mary. Oh, in Miami, though. Mary, <laughs> Mary Wilson, because it wasn't really, it was just really a, uh, what we call a hole-in-the-wall type club, just thrown together, nothing fancy. So I was just Mary. I was Mary on crack. <laughs> Mary okay. on crack. Interesting. Mary well, on crack. That was your cover story. And it made it easy to buy crack. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Absolutely. Well, thank you for keeping my hometown safe. Yes. Mm. So that's good. Yes. Now, so it, now you have what we know, Tony, your husband, yes. but talk to us about the rest of your family. Okay. My son is 20. Okay. He attends um, uh, college in Tallahassee. Oh, wow. Um, and Where is my, he at? In Pam? Um, yes. Florida State. Well, he was in the engineering program. Okay. It's a dual degree. Dual degree. Oh, good. Okay. I'm going to put FAMU and FAM <laughs> and FSU together. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and my daughter, and now he's going into his junior year. All right. And then my daughter is going into her junior year in high school. Okay. Um, and she's 15. Wow. Yeah. So I have two kids. And I uh, I couldn't have done this job without my husband. Mm -hmm. um, he is a huge supporter. I've had to move in order to promote Right. And he's packed up the house and moved, you know, and just assisted the family in continuing to function while I traveled so much because this job is very demanding. Right. And as I promoted from special agent to lieutenant and then captain and then major and now I promoted, he's had to really step in and be mom and dad. Wow. So not only am I dealing with those issues at work, being away from the family brings a level of stress right you know right so i've been able to do that with the the grace of my husband now it's really fascinating though with the two kids and and as an undercover agent you're going into very dangerous situations yes how do y'all deal with the anxiety around that as a family my husband has never been worried mm -hmm. he's never displayed any worry i believe it's because of that strong support and he believes strongly in me as well as my son. My right. daughter worries all the time. Mm -hmm. Females mostly do. So when I leave home, which is weekly, I'm gone three or four days a week, mm. she constantly worries. Right. And so, again, that's that faith, the, the, the praying and the prayer and my husband engaging, and um, that has really helped her a little. Um, but it has been hard. Yeah, I yeah. Can, I can it has been. Yeah, can, yeah. She constantly asks me, will I make it back home? Mm. She loves the media. Mm. She's right. that age. Right. And um, she watches everything and she questions everything. And she loves politics. Uh-oh. Mm. Interesting. <laughs> and I'm just going to well, leave that some, there. We need somebody that loves it enough to yeah. So that. she That's loves okay. and she wants to know why do certain things happen, mm -hmm. um, certain things happen. And will I make it back home at night? Mm -hmm. That's her biggest fear. Wow. Yeah. I can see that. Oh, yeah. I mean, that'd be hard. What have, has your undercover life ever collided with your real life? <laughs> it sure has. Well, 
sitting in church. <laughs> what? <laughs> Bethel Baptist, I recall. Um, I was Mary Wilson, and I had been working a food stamp case. And I had been, unfortunately, an older uh, black male had been selling me everything I could purchase with the food stamp card. And um, while sitting in church, he was sitting behind me. And I went, the, the family, we were, they were really young then. And he tapped me on the shoulder. Good morning, Sister Mary. Oh, my goodness. And I'm like, <laughs> you have the wrong person because I'm out of character. I forgot Wow. And, yeah, it was the gentleman that I had been um, working undercover in his store, um, thousands of dollars of uh, uh, product that I was purchasing that you're not allowed to purchase with that card. Right. And uh, in return, he was making, believe it or not, a lot of money. Right, right. And, uh, yeah, he tapped me on the shoulder, and then I had to go back into character. Oh, you know, yeah, that was scary. I've had a lot of situations where, um, yeah, it's been pretty scary. You ever had a situation where you didn't feel as though your fellow officers were <laughs> watching out for you? Yes, I could think of a, a, another investigation where I was um, working narcotics. I was in a small town um, in, in Florida. There's a lot of rural areas. Mm -hmm. So there was a bar where I was, uh, I would say, 10 miles down a dirt road. Um, we had, uh, my backup was four Caucasian males. Um, and they, back then we had, um, like a repeater. So I, I was wired and mic'd up like I am now, but we had a code word. And if something happened, I'm to give the code word and they will come to my aid. Well, the bar owner, um, actually put a gun to my back and said, I know you're a cop because a fellow officer advised him that he was under investigation, hmm. that there was a female officer in there that he had never seen before working drugs. Be whoa, very whoa, careful. Whoa. Uh, Police? Another officer, yes. Okay. A white male officer. Um, I was there working on behalf of the sheriff's department. Remember, I'm a state agent. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm there to help them. I'm his undercover. And he advised the bar owner that I was there working undercover. And when I gave the code word because I had the gun um, in my back, if you will, my officers, my backup did not respond. Wow. Yeah. How did that, you how did you end up getting out of that? Oh, I was just telling one of the ladies that works for your company, de-escalation. I took a class, de-escalation. Right. I never thought that class would be beneficial. It's being able to talk. Again, with the issues that we're dealing with now, being able to talk. I talked my way out of that. Wow. Yes. I, I bet you had some talking to do to uh, your backup when you... Oh, you have no idea. I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, they just, they just didn't respond. I, I, it was, you know, and the stories go on and on right. and on. I've had several officers tell me they would not back me up. They don't, black, they don't back up blacks. Wow. I mean, it's, yeah. Do you feel like, you know, it's so disturbing, Sabrina, to yes. hear that. Do you feel like, you know, there's anything hopeful do you feel like people are starting to listen? I mean, we just made Juneteenth a national yeah. holiday. Somebody's listening. I have to remain hopeful. Mm -hmm. I have to because that's what keeps me grounded to do the job. Um, every morning um, when I walk into one of our field offices, I have to pray. Right. I have to remind myself why I do this job and, and, and who's greater than all the people that I work around, and that's my God. Right. Because if I don't, um, I would fall and fail. Wow. wow. That's important. 
That is important. And I encourage that, although we have to keep, they tell us we have to keep religion out of the office. Right. But I find a tactful way to remind my team that so that they can sort of follow the same. Um, well, the motto of policemen is to protect and serve. So. Protect and serve. That's what they tell us. And then when we go to training, they say, go home by any means necessary. Right. Mm -hmm. What did you just tell that officer? Right. Mm -hmm. Right. That's, that's, that's inside information. That's but kind it's of the factual. Gap. Yeah. Go home by any means necessary. Yeah. Well, you spoke a little bit earlier about just the fear in yeah. the black community, but also the fear of white police officers yes. when they're out there policing as well. They do want to go home. Yeah. What's, you know, what would you say to help them ease that fear? What can they do? I'll share with you before I answer that question that I've had. I've had conversations with some of my um, white colleagues and subordinates, and they tell me that they are so fearful because they've only been taught or believe or have seen that if they come in contact with a black male, that black male has a gun, they're going to kill him. And they believe it, mm. regardless of what you tell them. But I have to share with them that you have to be open-minded. Not every person is bad. Right. I'm in law enforcement 23 years. I'm not bad. Right. And I can lie down at night and know that within my spirit. But they believe that if they come in contact with someone that is black, they are there to harm because that's what they've been taught. And vice versa. Black families, people believe that the white officer is there to kill them. Right. And... Yeah, and you, it's a I mean, cycle. you hear that rhetoric. You hear yes. about, mm -hmm. you know, black people being hunted. Yes. And that kind of yes. that kind of yeah. rhetoric. And it just yes. seems like there's so much fear on both sides. On both that sides. That you end up with things the going chaos on. That, we have, that we have now. It's the headlines on the news. Yeah. And remember, that's what we're seeing. Before, um, it was happening. But mm -hmm. now we are seeing it in real time. Because of social media. Because of social media. Mm -hmm. And they're saying they're here to kill us. They're here to kill us. And so people hear that because everybody don't have a strong mind. Right. We're right. all the same. Our minds are different. Yeah. And people believe, you know, kind of what the people that they trust in their lives tell them. And so if your Absolutely. parents and grandparents are telling you, you know, it's this way, or your big brother's telling yeah. you it's this way, then you're going to grow up, you know, believing it's that way. I was very excited yesterday talking about Juneteenth. I have an officer in my Jacksonville office who was absolutely against it. Mm -hmm. What is the purpose of this? This is a waste of time. This is, he was angry. Right. He was absolutely angry. And, you know, so I've talked to him over the years. Mm -hmm. I still have to stay hopeful. Right. But I say over the years. Mm-hmm. And that was the conversation we had yesterday. Well, it's great you could have that conversation, at least. He was open about it. He was you. open. Um, but, you know, I have to believe that change is coming. <laughs>